0: From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll look at rising crime rates and declining arrests in Milwaukee County. We'll also learn about efforts to simplify the reentry process from prison.
1: 95% of the people that are in prison one day get out. That's just, that's just a fact. Right. If these individuals are releasing, and they are, how can we ensure, how can we maximize them becoming who you want them to become.
0: Plus we'll learn about a project that's documenting and preserving the experiences of some of the first Chinese Americans to come to Milwaukee. The
2: community's voices deserve to be heard and I know it's also urgent to document those stories firsthand knowledge.
0: All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first here are today's headlines. This is Like Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us today. The COVID-19 pandemic shut down a lot of things, including parts of our criminal justice system. Courts, jails, and police officers all had to change in light of safety concerns. But since the height of the pandemic, trends have emerged that some researchers find concerning. In Milwaukee and cities around the country. Arrests and charges are down, while rates of some crimes have risen substantially. The Wisconsin Policy Forum digs into these numbers in a recent report titled Under Pressure. To learn more, Lake Effect's Joy Powers speaks with Rob Hankin and Ari Brown from the Forum. So this report
3: looks at quite a lot of data. I'm going to start here because so much of this is is really in light of the pandemic. Uh, But we, of course, saw changes all across our culture due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, The justice system was no different. So what are some of the policy changes we saw in light of the COVID-19 pandemic?
4: I would argue, Joy, that there's no function of government that saw greater upheaval than the justice system, certainly at the height of the pandemic. When you think about the extent to which courts rely on face-to-face human interactions, interviews with victims and witnesses, which of course can be done now virtually, but still better in person, and jury proceedings and and so on. And, And that's just part of the system. District attorneys and their jobs obviously law enforcement and the extent to which law enforcement had to take into account in terms of how police officers conducted their job, whether the risk of actually interacting with a fellow human being um, and potentially bringing that fellow human being into a detention setting was worth the public health risk. So there was clearly considerable upheaval some of the main things that received a lot of attention that were really intuitive were the creation of some major backlogs in the court system because of the inability to have jury trials for an extended period of time and so forth. We know that the House of Correction and the Milwaukee County Jail made very big modifications to some of, to, to their policies in terms of who was going to be detained and maybe relaxing somewhat, who might be either released entirely or released for GPS monitoring. So we we, we saw things there. Um, We didn't get into as much some of the changes in policies and procedures for police officers, but undoubtedly there were differences there as well.
3: It's interesting when the COVID-19 pandemic began, I think we were already having This larger cultural conversation about de-incarceration, about reducing arrests, about reducing incarceration just in general, putting people into the justice system in general. Uh, Now, of course, we have seen a major decline in a lot of different categories. So you looked at three different markers uh, related to crime, reported offenses, arrests, and clearance rates. I'd like to go through all of those. How have these changed during the time of the pandemic?
5: I think this was really one of the cruxes of our report, was just trying to look at the intricate ways in which these changed. In general, the data that we have in the report starts in 2018, uh, in January of 2018, and ends uh, in December of 2022, Um, and that is true for this section as well. In terms of offenses, I think we see numbers that are now, in 2022, slightly elevated from what they were previously um, in 2018. In Milwaukee County, there were a little over 36,000 offenses in part one crimes, which would be considered our kind of more serious crimes. Uh, In 2022, it was closer to 38,000, so a slight increase. A lot of that is being very heavily driven by uh, a spike in 2021 and a still elevated level in 2022 of motor vehicle theft. A lot of other crime categories have seen either stagnation or decline since then just for our part one crimes. Uh, We're only able to look at part two crimes uh, for the Milwaukee Police Department, but those were generally higher uh, in 2022 than they were in 2018 as well. What we saw that was kind of contrasting that, and I think one of the the items that really piqued our interest, was that arrests in general were down both for part one crimes and for part two crimes. Um, were, they were down a lot more for part two crimes.
3: What do you mean uh, when you say a part one crime versus a part two crime?
5: So part one crimes would constitute kind of our more more serious, quote unquote, uh, crimes, things like burglary, robbery, aggravated assault, um, murder, and non-negative manslaughter, um, larceny theft, um, whereas part two crimes constitute basically everything else. Um, a lot of things that we would consider to be property crimes, just some of the items that we looked at.
4: Drug, drug possession crimes, prostitution, things like that are also yeah. part two crimes, not part one crimes.
5: Weapons law violations, which is one that we saw a real uh, increase in. So, yeah, a lot of the Part 2 crimes we saw, you know, pretty stark increases for whereas Part 1 crimes generally, um, ex- save for motor vehicle theft, are either kind of where they were at pre-pandemic
3: or have declined slightly. It, it's interesting because there is this slight rise as you're looking at the chart, but then when you pull back and you go, well, what's actually risen? It is largely vehicle thefts and then larceny.
5: Yeah, I think in the part two crimes, like weapons law violations would be, but the the real spike that we saw in part one crimes was the motor vehicle theft. And, you know, just from talking to stakeholders, I think we have a pretty clear explanation there, which was um, this quirk that was kind of discovered in specifically, I believe, Kia and Hyundai vehicles that made them um, more susceptible to theft um, that was, you know, fairly quickly discovered. And and you've started to see a pretty stark decrease in motor vehicle theft since that time. We don't have 2023 numbers quite yet, but just from kind of the early uh, indications that we've seen, those are continuing to decline.
3: As we look at this trend overall, I think it does, for a lot of people who are inside of this space, speak to larger goals that people have had, right? Fewer arrests, uh, fewer people ending up in the system overall, with it, it seems to be uh, fairly even amounts of, of criminality that are, that are still happening. It's not like we've seen giant spikes overall. When we get to kind of the, the flip side of this system, we've also seen declines across the board for DA referrals, charges, and dispositions. What does that really mean in the context of our judicial system?
4: So I, I think, first of all, a very important thing. So we, we talked about offenses, and we are not alone. We, we know that Milwaukee is not the only big city that did see an increase in crime. As the early height of the pandemic diminished, lots of... The- things were happening in society, and and crime rates went up, and in particular, violent crime rates went up. There were certain things you would have expected to spike during the pandemic, and then you would have expected during 2022 to start to return more to normal. And what we saw was that it was arrests where that didn't happen. And there were a few factors there. Number one, arrests started declining prior to the pandemic. So, 2018 and 2019 saw some significant decline in arrests without an equivalent decline in offenses. So, it wasn't that offenses were down, so fewer people were being arrested, just fewer people were being arrested. And again, some might argue that's not a bad thing, that maybe we were arresting too many people. That arrest decline continued during the height of the pandemic, and then it continued in 2022 as we were emerging from the pandemic. And the sheer magnitude of the arrests for the Part 2 less serious crimes, about 60%, uh, 61% when comparing 2018 to 2022, and then 37% drop in more serious Part 1 arrests when comparing 2018 to 2022. And so that is worth the attention of justice system leaders. Lots of different reasons why this could have been occurring but with so many fewer people being arrested, then that cascaded through the rest of the system. So to your specific question, referrals to the district attorney were down as would have been expected. Here's another catch, charging rates by the district attorney. So irrespective of whether referrals were down, charges as a percentage of referrals was starting to drop prior to the pandemic and continued to drop in 2022. And then you would have thought that these big backlogs in the courts, because of the decline in arrests, referrals, charges, that that maybe those could have been eaten away at more quickly than they have been. We have found that, indeed, the misdemeanor backlog has uh, returned almost to pre-pandemic levels, but the felony backlog still remains much higher than it was before the pandemic. We did take a look at lengths of stay in Milwaukee County uh, detention facilities, both the jail, known as the criminal justice facility, uh, as well as the uh, community reintegration center, which used to be called the House of Correction. And, And no question, lengths of stay were up sizably. And while we don't have the data to make the exact connection, one could surmise that the lengthier time it is taking to dispose of cases contributed to the increased length of stay.
3: As we're looking at all of these data points, what is the picture that we're seeing right now? What is the state of Milwaukee's judicial system?
4: So the last thing in the world that we want to do is minimize the amount of upheaval that occurred, particularly in the last nine months of of 2020, and, and really the whole year almost in, in 2021. It's a good news, bad bad news story for the misdemeanor cases, there's always going to be pending cases. The, the question is how many cases are pending at any given time? We looked at that, and we looked at the amount of time on average that it takes from start to finish for a case to hit the court system and then to be disposed of. We, we found that both the backlogs of pending cases grew, and the amount of time that it takes grew dramatically. But for misdemeanor cases, those have returned almost to pre-pandemic normals by the end of 2022, but for felony cases, that's not the case. And Ari, Ari, I don't know if you want to amplify some of that.
5: Yeah. So, so you know, I think at the end of the report, we kind of identify three main items that we think are pretty important for justice system leaders to continue to pay attention to throughout this year uh, and, and in the following years. So Rob just talked about one, which is the backlogs the big one that we really highlight is that you are starting to see the misdemeanor backlogs that are subsiding but there were over 5000 felony cases pending in December 2022 um that was 59.8% higher than the monthly low in 2018 of 3163 cases so that is still you know very high and that affects other things so not only is there that backlog but both the age of pending cases and the median age at disposition in each month for these felony cases is still very high and looks very much like it did in the biggest peaks of COVID in 2020 and 2021. So that's one of the items that we identify. We've already mentioned the other two, so arrests would be one. We wanna understand why arrests are down so much. Sworn staff levels are way down um, over the last five years or so staff that you know are available are having to spend a lot of time on things like medical runs um, which was not something that they were having to do prior to the pandemic and you just have an increase in what they refer to as these priority one calls that take a lot of time uh, and a lot of resources that are reducing police officers ability to do proactive policing um, which is one of the things that can lead to some of those rests happening in the first place so that's another factor we want to understand why rests are down and what some of the side effects of that are and then the other one is the decline in charge rates which is you know charging as a percentage of all referrals made to the DA We want to understand why that's down it's not down a ton it's kind of in the high 30 percent for both misdemeanor and felony cases relative to the mid to high 40 percent so we're not talking a a huge scale here but certainly numbers that that jump out to you we want to understand why that's happening and we talked to justice system leaders who cited things like you know as cases go on longer and longer you have a harder time bringing witnesses in you have evidence that is you know not getting lost necessarily but people forget what happened on the day of a crime you know people move out of state things like that starting to look at those numbers over time and as the backlogs come down and as courts are able to handle you know the same amount of cases that they were in 2017 2018 2019 are we starting to see those charge rates come back up or if they remain down is that something that we're okay with and, and you know going to continue moving forward with
3: my big takeaway from the report and and I think I'm getting this from this conversation as well, is that there are a lot of numbers, there are a lot of there's a lot of interesting information inside of those numbers, but we still need to do a bit of digging to understand what they mean and how they're affecting us.
4: I I think you've hit the nail on the head. And 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 again, I I think what, what we have shown is in some very important areas, things today do not look like they looked prior to the pandemic. We don't know enough yet to tell the community, whether that's a good thing, a bad thing, a mixed thing, and, and that goes for each of these metrics. But but we do feel like, first of all, we make the point, echoing a point made by the former chief judge, uh, Chief Judge Trigiano, that this is an ecosystem. So if there's a problem in one area of the justice system pipeline, i.e. the courts are clogged, that's going to have ramifications moving to the back ends of the pipeline, actually the beginning ends of the pipeline and and vice versa. And so it's 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 helpful to think of the justice system as an ecosystem. And just as if we were biologists um, or environmentalists, if you know if we're detecting a problem in in the environmental ecosystem, we know there are going to be impacts elsewhere. And so let's understand what's causing the problem, can it be fixed? And if it can't be fixed or for whatever reason we don't want to fix it, let's then look at those other impacts and and assess those.
3: All right. Well, Rob, uh, Ari, thank you both so much for joining us here on Lake Effect. And I look forward to seeing what's next.
4: Well, thanks a lot for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us.
0: Ari Brown is a senior researcher for the Wisconsin Policy Forum, and Rob Hankin is president of the forum. They both join Like Effects Joy Powers. Did you know you can listen to Like Effect as a podcast? Just search for Like Effect wherever you get your podcast to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Like Effect interviews. In about 20 minutes, we'll learn about the experiences of the first Chinese Americans to come to Milwaukee and how their histories are being documented in a new project. But first, we learn about an effort to centralize resources for people re-entering society from prison. That's next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.
6: This is WEWM's Silver. This is my parents, and by proxy, my dog, Hops. He's a Shetland sheepdog. And one of my absolute favorite sounds is him drinking water out of his water bowl. When he does, he has a particular pattern, like a waltz. It's a Shostakovich masterpiece of sorts. So when I hear Hops drink, I envision big ballrooms, sweeping gowns, and people twirling for days. It's a daily reminder to be a little fancy and stay hydrated. Send us your favorite sounds along with why you love them. The instructions are at wwm.com. Our goal is to air them on 89.7 WUWM Milwaukee's NPR.
0: to like effect on Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. After being convicted of murder in the 1990s at the age of 15, Adam Procell was sentenced to life in prison. He was paroled in 2018 and has since spent his life addressing issues with the re-entry system. This started by working directly with formerly incarcerated people to help them navigate the system. Procell has since branched into centralizing reentry services to make it easier to navigate for people reentering society after prison, as well as working to build trust between formerly incarcerated people and police. Procell joins like Effect Sam Woods to talk about his work, starting with how he felt reentering society after prison.
1: When I began my journey inside, and I I say this kind of laughing, but I had a pager. Mm-hmm. <laughs> People obviously really don't use pagers anymore unless you're an ER doctor. A while ago, yeah. And there was no internet as we know it. I lived with my mom. She did my laundry because I was a a
3: kid.
7: Yeah.
1: And I essentially just had to understand what does it mean to be an adult,
7: Hmm.
1: a law-abiding adult in a society. And thankfully, and I I give a lot of credit to somebody that – A lot of people in my space wouldn't want to credit, but my supervision agent gave me just time to breathe. Mm. She didn't force me into getting a job the week that I got out. She didn't force me into a lot of different things. She said, "You, you don't even understand what it feels like to be free as an adult, so just take some time. Thankfully, I was blessed with a family that created a soft landing spot when I returned home, and so... I didn't have to search for a home. I had residence. I didn't have to search for transportation. I was allowed to use the family car. And so that I was just given an opportunity to breathe and understand like, what does it feel like to be an adult. And I know that sounds odd to say. No, yeah. But the first, I would say, day, unusual way to describe this, but it was terrible. As crazy as that sounds because being released from prison should be and was one of the most joyous occasions of my life. But the pressure within that first 24 hours, it was almost painful. And I remember sitting at the kitchen table in my grandmother's house and feeling to myself that this is terrible because the, the pressure in my chest from just the, the amount of emotion that I was feeling, it made it uncomfortable. Again, not to say that It was a bad thing, but it just, at that moment, was like, this is terrible. I I feel so uncomfortable right now because I'm being flooded with emotion. The second day, it got much better, and then following that, it it got a lot better. But that first 24 hours, it was really a, I don't want to use the word negative to prelude the word experience, but it wasn't pleasant, as, as unusual as that sounds. Yeah,
7: well, I mean, it sounds like a, you know, a shock to the system and a shock to, you know, you at that point, um, you know, spent most of your life in prison and grown up from the age of, you know, from your teen years to this point. And so, yeah, I mean, I can under, you understand the kind of like, yes, I should be feeling, and it was, you know, joyous, but at the same time, like, well, okay, what do I, what now, like, what right. do I do now? But in that time since 2018, in that initial shock, I think it's fair to say that you found your you're, you're finding your way. Uh, you wear you wear a, a lot of hats. You teach at Marquette University, you work with Partners in Hope, Paradigm Shift as well as Home to Stay. And so I know that's a lot of hats, and so I'm going to give you I, I want I'll yes. let you I'll let you kind of describe where how all those hats intersect and how they're informed by that um, by that past experience, particularly with the reentry process.
1: Yes, it's it's always difficult to sort of manage the hats, yeah. at least in explanation form. But mm-hmm. via timeline, I would begin with Partners in Hope, because I was actually interviewed for that job in a prison visiting room mm. in 2018, a month before I was released. My then-CEO got permission from the warden to conduct a job interview in the prison visiting room, because as I was told by him, they were forming a program called Partners in Hope, and it's a faith-based prisoner reintegration organization. And he said, I'm just some white guy from Indiana that has zero street cred. Nobody's going to hear anything I have to say. Mm -hmm. So we're looking for individuals that understand what change looks like and can help others transition successfully back into the community. And so that's sort of where my journey into the reentry space began, really actually before I even stepped foot into society. And when I got to Milwaukee, I started to realize that Milwaukee has a fair amount, almost an abundance of reentry resources. But the problem is they're all siloed and nobody speaks to one another. And we essentially have to rely on a supervision agent to, one, know of their existence, two, have the time, and three, have the hope that an individual that is being released has the ability to get to wherever this resource is because they're all over the city. And so that kind of transitioned into one of the next steps or next hats, if you will, of home-to-stay, where we, we decided, okay, how can we, how can we maximize effectiveness when it comes to connecting individuals that are reentering society with the resources that they need? So we thought, well, what if we brought 30, 40 reentry service providers into one location, and so once a month, usually the first Wednesday of every month from Noon to 2 at 324 West North Avenue, we conduct home-to-stay reentry resource fairs, where we do just that. We bring in roughly 35 to 40 reentry service providers, employers, and people that just want to help people succeed. And we get a lot of individuals that are on supervision that come at the behest of their their agent. And a lot of times they'll meet their agent and con- conduct those weekly or monthly supervision meetings literally in the space where so many of their entry resource needs can be met so we are located on a bus line cuz that's another issue that we've we found to be yeah. a, a huge barrier a lot of individuals don't have transportation and so if you have a resource that's completely on the other side of the town that's nowhere near a, a bus line
7: you're not getting to it
1: you're not I can be the best resource in the world but nobody's going to be able to get to it so we are on a major bus line which people really don't think about that but that's that's hugely important
7: on this on this topic of having a one stop shop for reentry services i know I know a lot of people who have either worked in nonprofits or social services or have tried to navigate social service systems that um, this feeling of everything being siloed that you're talking about is going to be very familiar. But from your experience with reentry, what difference would it have made to have just kind of everything in one place as opposed to, I'm guessing, kind of having to go over to this side of town for this, for, you know, employment resources and this other side of town for Um, housing resources, and etc. What difference would it have made to have all of that just in one spot as you're trying to do here with Home to Stay?
1: I think the easiest way to understand this is, and this is no excuse, it's more of a reality check to the situation. If it is difficult to essentially change the way you live your life, people are going to fail. For a lot of those in society, it isn't a big deal to go get a social security card. It isn't a big deal to go get a bank account. It isn't a big deal to go sign up for health care. But if you've never done any of those things, and as soon as you get out, you have to go do all those things, you don't have a car, you don't know where any of them are at, it starts to feel overwhelming. And again, this is not an excuse. But we have to understand that, okay, if we don't change the way we think, if we don't meet people where they are, we're just going to keep ending up in the same cycle. And so if it is too difficult for somebody to completely rearrange their life, they go back to what's comfortable, what they know. And unfortunately, oftentimes that's a criminal lifestyle. And so we have to find a way to make change attainable. And right now it's not.
7: Yeah, I, th- I think there's um, some folks who hear that and say, well, I made it without all this help, um, I figured it out. And so, you know, as part of reentering society, you should be able to as well. Um, You you mentioned the necessity of having compassion and meeting someone where they're at when they're reentering society. But can you talk more about just like how not meeting people where they're at kind of sets people up for failure when it comes to reentering society? Sure.
1: A way I try to explain that is if someone asked you to solve this equation, some math equation, and you never had a math teacher that taught you these things, well, how would you solve that math problem? You just assume that everybody has been given these same resources as they grew up. So if you don't understand how to solve a particular math problem, what do you do at that point? You need to solve it. Right. And so if I'm at that point where I don't have the skills, I don't have the knowledge to solve that math problem, well, then I'm not going to try to solve it. I'm going to go do something else. Hmm. So going back to successfully reacclimating to a non-criminal lifestyle, if that's the quote-unquote answer to the problem, I can't do it. I just don't have the skills or tools necessary, well, then I'm not going to be that. Mm-hmm. And so we need to find a way to understand it's not about minimizing. It's not about giving people a free pass. When people make mistakes, myself included, we do need to be held responsible, but we can't unring that bell. And so now we're at the point where 95% of the people that are in prison one day get out. That's just, that's just a fact. Right. If these individuals are releasing, and they are, how can we ensure, how can we maximize them becoming who you want them to become, your neighbor, somebody that's going to stand next to you in the grocery line, whatever it is, we need to give them the tools. And so me just saying, do better, or yeah. don't do this, or I did it, you can too. Well, that, how's that working out for us? It's not. Yeah. Yeah. So we have to take
7: a different approach. And then so in this effort that you have with you know Partners in Hope, Paradigm Shift, Home to Stay, all these um, all these uh, entities, it seems like you're trying to build towards that different approach. But I'm i am guessing that there are barriers to that work, whether it be political or power struggle barriers or, or funding barriers. I'm sure it's not just, you know, you just say what you said to me right now and then it just like clicks for everyone, right? right? So <laughs> I wish it were uh, that easy. Yeah. So while doing this work and wearing all the hats that you do wear, what kind of barriers are you encountering when it comes to either changing minds or changing policy?
1: Yeah, it's that's one of the more grueling aspects of this work. But the work itself is already grueling. Yeah. And then it seems like we're f- fighting half of the people that want people to successfully reintegrate back into our society.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: A lot of people within the reentry space want to point the finger in the eye of the system and tell the system, you suck. And at the end of the day, I think people lose sight of the system isn't some boogeyman in the corner. It's the system is run by humans. And when a human gets a finger stuck in their eye, they really don't react positively. And so the system buckles, the system bristles, rather. And when the system bristles, I feel people in the reentry space, especially those with lived experience, don't necessarily have a voice. And so we take a completely different approach. We reach out to the system and say, we understand that you, you cannot do this by yourself. We can't do it by ourselves. So let's find a way to collaboratively work together. And one of those areas that we really lean into is with law enforcement. And I know a lot of individuals, especially those getting out of prison, really don't want to interact with police officers. Yeah,
7: understandably. And
1: yeah, I I get that. Police officers are often looked at as the representation of authority. And if your mindset is authority doesn't like me, it's just a little bit easier to buck authority i.e. commit crimes, go against it. So we bring in police officers and we have them lean in with love to those that are just getting out of prison and become mentors, believe it or not, to those that are getting out of prison. And when you have a police officer, i.e. the system, leaning into you with love and compassion and a a hand saying, how can I help you succeed? You don't want to let that system, i.e. authority, down. By default, subconsciously, you're really not wanting to commit a crime without even realizing it. Which is all fine and well, but a lot of people within this reentry space kind of look at me like, "Ah, oh, you're working with the police. We we don't like them, so therefore, we don't necessarily like you because you're part of them." Yeah.
7: So you mentioned a, a lack of trust between uh, from people who are reentering society from prison um, towards police officers, and how your role is often to kind of break down barriers and rebuild trust from, uh, from, uh, from the bottom up um, between these two parties. And I'm curious if you also have, like, what kind of work you have to do on the other side for law enforcement or other, you know, either law enforcement or just people in society generally who also don't really trust someone who's just coming from prison.
1: Absolutely. And sometimes I don't know which is harder
7: (laughs) to help those
1: getting out of prison understand that an officer is human or to help an officer understand that somebody who has committed a very violent act, that they literally spend a career trying to get off of the streets is now becoming potentially their neighbor. And again, back to us taking an approach of let's work with the system. I think that has allowed me access to Well, in fact, I know it has. Where officers are trained at the police academy and giving the opportunity to have sessions, giving the opportunity to humanize those like myself who had made mistakes, helping them understand that, yes, you put handcuffs on somebody, but if they are allowed back into our society, why that can essentially make your job easier, safer, if we look at each other as human. One of the most pivotal things that we do is traffic stop etiquette at Partners in Hope where we reverse the roles. We have those that just got out of prison become the officers, and we have the police officers become the driver. So each can understand the mindset of the other, and we, we run them through various scenarios. And our guys and girls get shot every single time. And it's not that we're sadists or want our returning citizens to be shot, but we want them to understand what's going on in the mindset of an officer during one of these traffic stops. Conversely, We want officers to understand if somebody's on parole for a long time and they think they're going back to prison for the rest of their life because of the way an officer's acting, well, that might put that officer's life in danger. Again, no excuse. So we really want to help each understand the mindset of the
7: other. Adam, thank you so much for joining us on Lake Effect and um, spending your time with me and and, uh, telling us about all the the work you're doing and, and all the trust that you're building out there.
1: Thank you, sir. I appreciate
7: it.
0: Adam Procell is a re-entry strategist working in various roles with Partners in Hope, Paradigm Shift, and Home to Stay. He spoke with Lake Effect's Sam Woods. We want to hear your story ideas for Lake Effect. If you have an idea for an interview or a conversation you'd like to hear on the show, give our community connection line a call. That number is 414-251-8970. You can also submit your ideas at wuwm.com slash Researchers have been documenting the histories and experiences of Chinese people in Milwaukee. We'll learn about that next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. The experiences of Chinese Americans in Milwaukee are being explored and documented through an oral history project. It's called Places of Their Own, Learning Chinese American Legacy Through Oral History. Dr. Hon Yan Yang of Boston College and a team of students researched how Chinese immigrants strive for survival and success in 20th century Milwaukee. This research will be presented at the Milwaukee Jewish Federation this weekend and hosted by the Wisconsin chapter of the Organization of Chinese Americans. Ahead of that, WUWM's race and ethnicity reporter, Taryn Powell, speaks with Dr. Yang and one of her research students, Emily, Hiltunen, in about the project. Dr. Yang starts by explaining how the project began.
2: I was leaving in Milwaukee at the time. I was just finishing my doctoral degree at UW-Milwaukee. And I did not do Milwaukee Chinese history on my dissertation and my first book project, but there was also something lingering from the past. I wrote an article about the history of Chinese restaurants of a particular family, the Toy family. And there's a lot of things I know are yet to be explored from that semester long class about critical race theory in the English department. So I wanted to learn more and I think the community voices deserve to be heard and i know it's also urgent to document those stories first-hand knowledge so i was really lucky to get a funding from the oral history association and the national endowment for the humanities to start this oral history project and later on working with a team of wonderful students like emily to work on the interview transcribing process so i learned a lot from the process and i think It's part of how I feel being invisible in Milwaukee as an international student, and so I wanted to learn more. I knew there was a community here. There's still a community, even though small, but their stories are no less, you know, significant than other parts of the nation.
6: Tell me, what are some of the
2: things you all learned along the way? I learned a lot about kind of the the ability, the resilience of Chinese immigrants to carve out those kind of interstitial spaces because at the time, non-citizens couldn't own properties. But in my interviews, I found people are really kind of renting places, making those places, decorated spaces as everyday lives, but also part of the business they operated. Um, and just the ability of everybody is consciously trying to create their own business out of reasons of you know exclusion, discrimination, but also kind of a self-driven entrepreneurial spirit, right? And the Chinese immigrants um, had uh, in Milwaukee. And the history dated back to the 1870s, as some earlier scholarships have indicated. But I never knew, or most people consider Milwaukee never had a Chinatown. Uh, But to my surprise, the newspapers refer to a block on North 4th Street, which is where the UWM Panther Arena locates that used to be referred as the common block of Chinatown. And people just, you know, never learn about it. And that's where I had my graduation ceremony. And uh, so I was fascinated by those histories I was able to uncover from some salient facts. People mentioned, oh, you know, there was association. Then I look up in the newspaper, I find more about it. So those oral histories are extremely valuable for me to discover new research and to revise what I already knew. But maybe some additional history or new evidence can be added to you know, what we already knew from this point. Emily, you want to add something? So kind of to
6: reiterate what Dr. Yang just said, one of the special things about Milwaukee is that there is like no real official centralized China location, which is something that a lot of the people we interviewed actually mentioned in their stories. And that kind of played an important role in the character of the community because there was no centralized block where the Chinese community could be surrounded by each other. They were almost forced to become very integrated with everyone and all the other ethnic communities within Milwaukee. So on the one hand, we have all these stories that they shared about interacting with their neighbors and adopting local customs and forming really beautiful friendships with people with different backgrounds. But then on the other hand, something that a lot of business owners especially were able to accomplish over their lifetimes within their businesses, for example, with restaurants or laundries or grocery stores, a lot of them were able to find ways to continue to promote and celebrate their Chinese heritage, whether that was through the dishes they cooked for other people, whether that was through the architecture of the building themselves, or even just carrying on their family names. So that's been an interesting narrative thread throughout all 21 interviews that we took is just that the Chinese community in Milwaukee is very much American, but it is very much still preserving that Chinese spirit. You both talked about Milwaukee had its version of a Chinatown and people just didn't know it existed. What else do we learn about Chinese Americans in Milwaukee through this project that
2: hasn't been told? Dr. Yang? To some extent, I think the Chinese immigrants in Milwaukee or Chinese Americans, many have a lot of shared experiences like other parts of the country, but they also have some unique experiences. For example, they remain somewhat invisible because they are minorities, even to this day. Asian Americans makes up about 4.5% of city of Milwaukee population, right? Chinese was not even, I think Chinese not even 1%, maybe 0.5%. So by population, they're very minority. Even though Milwaukee has become a majority minority city, you know, the entire people of color population exists in whites, but there's larger, you know, Hispanic population, so on, and Hmong population way before Chinese, or like outnumbered Chinese. In a way, they feel a sense of invisibility, but at the same time, there's also racialized ideas about making them being hyper visible, right? What people know about Chinese, sometimes till today, they're understood in the way of very stereotypical, right? And, you know, the modal minority myth, all those things. As a city with such a small Chinese immigrant population, this issue became more acute compared to Metropolitans, where they are considered as the common people every day. And you belong here, you know, in the Midwest, people are always ask where are you really from that questions Asian Americans in Milwaukee were frequently asked but there are also another part beyond Chinese community itself I found there are a lot of inter-ethnic component of it especially the symbiotic relation between the Jewish community and the Chinese community in terms of Chinese restaurants people know Jewish people love Chinese restaurants but there are also Jewish merchants who invest in Chinese business, who supply grocery to Chinese business. And so there's a lot of history you can get about other communities, even doing this research project or oral history project specific on Chinese, which I find fascinating. i would let Emily add anything. You had
6: like everything really well. Just to kind of elaborate on that sense of inter-ethnic community. So because the Chinese-American community in Milwaukee was very integrated with the larger Milwaukee population, we saw all these stories from people about the dynamics they had with their customers. And it wasn't just Chinese people going to these restaurants and laundries and grocery stores. In fact, for a lot of people, their main customer base wasn't Chinese because, again, the Chinese population was rather small in Milwaukee. And what I find really interesting about that is that these businesses played a really important part in so many different people's childhoods growing up in Milwaukee. Like we heard from some people who were not Chinese that regardless, these Chinese restaurants, for example, they have tons of fond childhood memories of going there for a big trip out with their parents growing up. Um, So I think that's really just a testament to the important niche that these this community filled for the larger city. So Dr. Yang, oral storytelling as a practice is something vital to the Black American community in passing down our history for generations, especially parts that don't make it into textbooks, right? I'm wondering
2: if the same holds true for Chinese American culture. Thanks for that question. I think that speaks to some of the challenges I encountered during the process of interviewing people, right? And I think Chinese community, to some extent, the regional differences, but in Milwaukee, many of them see this as very personal, private. It speaks to a sense of personal, like family trauma or grief, right? And someone even mentioned Chinese don't like to talk about grief. So there was a lot of um, isolating experiences from the past, which I'm really mindful of when I'm, you know, trying to find people to interview. It's very much important, yet somewhat challenging to document those stories. But also, uh, the intergenerational thing do not always exist in terms of storytelling. A lot of the Asian parents are quiet. They don't talk about the past. And I think that creates a level of challenge in terms of how much oral histories have been passed down, right? Because if the descendants didn't inquire about it or really persistent of asking about it, They may never know where their grandparents, when they come from.
6: So the upcoming presentation of this research, Places of Their Own, will give folks in the community a chance to get a closer look into this project. What can they expect and what do you hope they take away from the experience?
2: Dr. Yang, you can take that first. First of all, I see this event as a give back to the community where you know I collect the stories from and I think the place where the people, the narrator or the interviewees will be there is really meaningful for me that their stories are shared as they wished, uh, being heard by the wider community, maybe stimulate other connections among each other. And so part of the talk will focus on kind of the clippings from the interview. I'll be playing some of them, but it will be structured in the way based on my research of three types of Chinese business, where they first started, what is the height of the business, what affected the evolution of business uh, over time, focusing on laundries, restaurants, and grocery stores. For example, the Chinese laundries is the oldest business among the three in Milwaukee. And the first one I could trace back 1879, and it reaches to the highest number from the year of 1940 has 78 Chinese laundry in the city of Milwaukee. So I want to give people a sense of the kind of the pattern and the evolution of business and where the business is located. To clarify a little bit what I mean by Chinatown, the newspaper referred to the one block on North 4th Street, maybe part of North 3rd Street as Chinatown predating 1950. That was really the early days. So the people who could remember that memory many of them already passed. So I noticed that only some of the oldest people among the interviewees would remember something like that. But the more recent where people who were born in the 60s usually would understand that there was never a Chinatown. So to clarify that distinction just quickly. I
6: think as Professor Yang said, this is a first and foremost, an opportunity to give back to the community that has given us so much amazing material and information. And it's a great way to promote and uplift their stories, because, again, this isn't exactly well-known, well-spoken about history. And I also, just to go off on a tangent, I also think it's um, significant that this is being held at a Jewish establishment, because as we hinted at earlier, in a lot of the oral histories, honestly, it was surprising to me, because a lot of the histories mention that there was a special relationship between the Jewish and Chinese communities in Milwaukee. And a lot of that is because there was like a solidarity between communities. And I think that sense of solidarity persists today, especially among minority communities. And so hopefully by detailing stories about that, some of which are very emotional and touching to me personally in this event, I hope we can further foster that idea that we're all in this together, these are all our shared histories.
0: Dr. Hanyan Yang is a professor at Boston College. Emily Hiltonin is a research student who worked on the places of their own project. Dr. Yang will be presenting her research this Sunday at the Milwaukee Jewish Federation. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Joy Powers and Sam Woods join me in producing Leg Effect each week with help from Robert Larry. Becky Mortensen is our executive producer. We also heard from Chuck Kornbach, Mayan Silver, Kobe Brown, Susan Bentz, and Taryn Powell from the WUWM News Team this week. Jason Reavy is our studio engineer. Michelle Matarnowski is our digital manager. Blair Navarra-Viegas is our digital editor. Trapper Shep wrote our theme music. If you've missed any of Lake Effect this week, you can find all of our conversations at wuwm.com. If you'd like to take the show on the go, don't forget you can download the Lake Effect podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us today, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.